I'm Monica Olson. And I'm Jennifer Walsh. And you're listening to the Biophilic Solutions Podcast, where every other week we sit down with experts and thought leaders across industries in order to explore the innate connection between humans and nature and why we need nature to thrive. We truly believe that in order to tackle the global environmental problems we're facing, we as humans must reconnect to the natural world and come to a better understanding of how we fit in and how we are so interconnected. So in every episode, we'll interview new guests that help us uncover and highlight nature-based solutions to get us on a path to greater health, tackling climate change, and ultimately getting outside and connecting with nature. So let's get to today's episode. Hi, Jennifer. Hey, Monica. So we took a little time off for the 4th of July holiday, but we are back today with another fabulous guest. Yes, we are. So today we are diving into a topic that is really fascinating and may be completely unexpected for a podcast that's all about nature. It's transportation and highways. Okay. Why on earth are we talking about transportation (laughs) on a podcast called Biophilic Solutions? So it goes without saying that we are big advocates for using alternative modes of transportation, walkable cities, getting out in nature. You hear us talking about ride sharing, public transit whenever possible. However, we also live in the real world and we know that highway transportation and cars and driving and all things like that, we all rely on them in this modern world. So basically, the big topic we're tackling today is what innovation do we have going on in the transportation sector and how can we make our roads and highways safer, more resilient? And really a focal point for clean and renewable energy. And dare we say, can we make a highway biophilic? I love that. Okay, you're so right. So to that end, there are some incredible solutions to reimagine our highways right at our fingertips that I think many people aren't aware of or haven't even considered. Our guest today is Ali Kelly, Executive Director of The Ray. The Ray is a stretch of highway just south of you, Monica, that is a living laboratory for some of the most exciting ideas in transportation. They are really reimagining what our highways could look like if they only implemented common sense, climate positive solutions like installing solar panels, underutilized spaces like right of ways, planting pollinator habitats rather than resource intensive turf grass and installing solar powered electric vehicle chargers at rest stops. Allie is a friend and neighbor, and she has a wealth of knowledge about how we can make highways of all places safer, more resilient and even carbon neutral, if you can believe it. Yes. So let's get to our conversation with Allie Kelly. Welcome back to Biophilic Solutions. Allie Kelly is here with us today from The Ray. She's also my neighbor. So I get to see her not really in person today, right? You're at the Detroit airport in between flights right now, Allie. That's right, Monica. I wish I was in Serenby. <laughs> You're coming back. I wish I was there with all of you. What are you talking about? Now I'm well, super jealous. <laughs> listen, open invitation all the time, guys. I know. I know. Allie, we're so excited to have you here today. I bet a lot of people don't know about the Ray that are in the general industry, the general public. And so I want to hear a little bit about like, what is it? What's your boilerplate? But then I really want to hear about you and how you became executive director of the Ray. And then we'll dive into all the incredible things that you guys are doing because it is a net zero highway, which I've never heard before, right? I don't think anybody quite understands what that means, but it is the future. I'm going to hand it off to you, Allie. Awesome. Thank you, Monica, for having me and the Ray on the show. I'm really excited to share our work and the motivation behind what we're doing on the nation's interstate system. So the Ray is, first of all, a nonprofit organization. We're a public charity founded in 2015. 
and we're mission oriented around better outcomes and transportation, specifically net zero highways, which we define as zero carbon, zero waste, and zero deaths in transportation. And just fundamentally, we believe that the technologies already exist today. The tools are in the toolbox for there to be better outcomes in transportation and for the infrastructure to enable modern mobility and transportation that will be net zero. So we believe that not only is this attainable, but these goals are already enabled by the technology and the infrastructure space. So therefore, our challenge is to help transportation agencies to move towards infrastructure technologies and to accept that these goals are within reach today. We're currently working in 25 states with nearly three dozen transportation agencies at the local, state, and federal level. So in a short period of time, this has become a national movement, but our hometown is Georgia. And in fact, there's an 18-mile stretch of Interstate 85 in the general vicinity of LaGrange and West Point, Georgia, right before you get to the Georgia-Alabama state line and the Chattahoochee River. And that 18-mile corridor on Interstate 85 is now known informally as the Ray Highway. And that's where all of this began, starting with our first project in August of 2015. And We are now the nation's premier test bed for net zero highway infrastructure, having worked on that particular 18-mile corridor for the last six and a half years. Amazing. And I love to surprise people that it's coming out of Georgia. You know, I think a lot of people are like, oh, whatever. Who knows what's down there? Maybe there's Atlanta. This is like West Georgia. And you guys are doing some of the most innovative work in the country. So I love that as a surprise, like this is where it's starting and it's already branched out so quickly. But Allie, how did you find out about the Ray? I've been with the organization since the beginning before we were an organization. We were just an inquiry around sustainable highways. And in fact, what led to the Ray Highway was an act by the Georgia General Assembly, a House resolution designating that 18-mile stretch of Interstate 85 officially as the Ray C. Anderson Memorial Highway, honoring the legacy of Ray Anderson, who was the CEO and founder of Interface Carpet Company, but more importantly was the pioneer of corporate sustainability and circular practices in heavy industry and manufacturing. So Ray was born in West Point, population 8,000. He was the son of a postal worker and an educator. He received a football scholarship to play for Bobby Dodd at Georgia Tech. His first season on the team as quarterback, he blew out his shoulder and begged Bobby Dodd to keep him on the team as the water boy because otherwise Ray Anderson did not have the funds to finish out school without a scholarship. So Coach Bobby Dodd kept Ray Anderson on the team as the water boy. He finished Georgia Tech with an engineering degree and went back to West Georgia, set up a family, and eventually his business interface in LaGrange, Georgia, in the 1970s, Interface was the first company producing modular carpet tiles or carpet squares in the American market. 
And the really cool thing about that time period was that it was right before the 80s where everything was big, big hair, mm-hmm. big shoulder pads, skyscrapers, modular offices with cubicles. And that move in the business world towards cubicles and modular office space and multi-floor that meant that the wiring had to move from the ceiling to the flooring, which necessitated carpet tile. And Ray Anderson and Interface were the only providers in the United States in the 1980s. And so in less than 20 years, Ray built a billion-dollar global business. And that led to the epiphany that he had in the early 1990s that he was the CEO, not only of a billion dollar global business, but also a take, make and waste company where in order to make carpet, you have to take petroleum products, which are limited natural resource, you make the carpet fiber and the carpet backing, it has maybe a 10, 15, 20 year useful life. And then it's discarded on a landfill where it bio persists for more than 100 years. And so that linear business and manufacturing profile of carpet inspired Ray to go circular. And he began making new carpet from carpet scraps carpet tile is made from giant carpet rolls. So there was a ton of scrap on the clean manufacturing floor, but eventually Interface even began to go into landfills and reclaim landfill carpet. They also have a really robust take-back program in order to retrieve and reclaim old carpet from their customers before it even makes its way to the waste cycle. That essentially in 1994, Ray Anderson bent the arc of the United States corporate culture by declaring that Interface would go zero waste to landfill and zero carbon, and that the company would transition to renewable energy sources and wastewater reuse. It's really hard to wrap your brain around 1994 being nearly 30 years ago, and I'm pretty sure I was obsessed with the ozone layer and the implications that my Aquanet hairspray destroying destroying the planet. And Ray Anderson's stake in the ground was to decarbonize a Georgia-based carpet company. And so when Governor Deal in 2014 signed the House resolution and formalized the naming of the highway after Ray, Ray's youngest daughter, Harriet, who still lives in LaGrange, Georgia, population 38,000, was driving back home to LaGrange from the state capitol. And she was on Interstate 85. And she began to ponder how out of sync Ray Anderson's name on what Harriet observed was a damn dirty highway. And what the family needed to do in order to enable the highway to better reflect the legacy of her father's work in sustainability and circularity. And that is how the Ray was born by a woman named Harriet Anderson Langford, wondering to herself aloud in the car, wonder what is a sustainable highway? What would that look like? And how much better would that be? We'll be right back after a quick break. Jennifer, guess what's coming up and where we get to hang out. What's that, Monica? 
the Biophilic <laughs> Leadership Summit. It's back this March 24th through 26th. Oh my gosh, I cannot wait to see you in person again. It's been way too long. I know, me too. And we invite all our listeners to come to this year's summit. We're going to be exploring biophilic placemaking and how we use biophilic principles to promote health, happiness, and vitality in public spaces. Yes, and I was just reading over the schedule, which I'm very excited about. There are so many great speakers and panels. And when you get to join us, I'll be doing a nature walk and moderating a wonderful panel on activating community spaces with two incredible women, an architect and an urban planner. So this summit is put on by the Biophilic Institute and Biophilic Cities Project. So you can also come meet all of the leading experts in biophilia. And in addition to all incredible multiple presentations, we're going to have all sorts of great farm to table meals, plus cocktails, some book signings and lots of networking, which is always a favorite. And it's going to be at your and my favorite place, the Inn at Serenby. Yep, that's one of my favorite places, as you know. So join us in B for the 6th Annual Biophilic Leadership Summit from March 24th to March 26, 2024. And you can learn more about the summit and register today at biophilicsummit.com. That's biophilicsummit.com. We hope to see you there. We'll see you soon. Bye, Jen. Bye. It's so cool. And I do love that word. I've heard the story where she's like, I don't know if daddy would feel good about his name on this highway, but she did something about it because it was such an honor. They were really trying to honor him, but what she realized it was sort of a disconnect. But now fast forward, what is it? Eight years you guys have been doing? Wait, no, no, 2015, right? So it's like fast forward, what started out was a question is an incredibly robust mission. And I hadn't been on the website in a while. You know, obviously we've known each other for a while and, but I couldn't believe all the initiatives on there. And so do you want to start out with the first thing that made sense? Because there's a couple really big concepts that I think, you know, all of us driving on the highways would recognize, but maybe don't understand. So if you want to just pull up one of your first what are we going to do with this thing to start? What does a net zero highway look like? And what would be that first initiative? Well, so big picture, as you are driving on the 18 mile corridor, you're not going to see much different on the corridor because it's not meant to be an Epcot Center experience. (laughs) And in fact, Georgia DOT and federal highways would never allow us to create driver distraction on the interstate. So When you're on the Ray Highway, you don't necessarily feel like you're in the Jetsons or that you are inherently a part of a system that's much different from the same interstate system in Alabama or in Atlanta. Having said that, there are some really key components to a net zero highway. And first of all, I want to make it clear that we embrace driver safety and transportation safety as a core of our work. In fact, we don't really understand how you can define sustainability without embracing human life safety and the vision zero concept in transportation for zero deaths. So there's a lot of work that goes into trying to improve transportation safety. However, it's important for 
us to realize that even today with all of the advancements in vehicle safety and vehicle technology, that we hit a 16-year high for transportation fatalities in 2021. Wow. So it's unbelievable that we're losing nearly 44,000 American lives due to transportation crashes and fatalities. And again, that's a 16-year high. Despite all of the technology that is being incorporated into vehicles through their advanced driver assist programs and systems, and also the work that we're doing in the infrastructure sector to try to improve safety. So clearly we have a lot of work left to do. The first project that we did on the Ray is actually probably the most well-known infrastructure now in the United States, which is an EV charging station. So our first EV charging station was incorporated at the rest area on the northbound lanes of I-85 at the Georgia-Alabama state line. It was a 50 kW charging station funded by Kia Georgia, and it has 12 solar panels associated with it. So it is solar-powered EV charging, or PV for EV, as it's known. And ours was not only one of the first charging stations on the interstate system at a rest area, but definitely the fastest charge and the first solar-powered or clean energy-powered EV charging stations on the interstate system. During the COVID year in 2020, we upgraded that EV charging station, and it now offers 175 kW to most drivers. That's on the CCS side. So there are two cables, one that provides a charge via a Chatamo cable, and the other side is CCS. On the Chatamo side, you're limited to between 80 and 100 kW just because of the technology. And the Chatamo technology is really being phased out of electric vehicles, and CCS is going to become the ubiquitous charging standard and charging cable. So we're excited that we'll be able to offer 175 kW to most electric vehicles as those new models are released over the next decade. In fact, I saw recently the news that the April 2022 figures show more than 2 million electric vehicles in operation in the United States, which is a significant increase. And the trajectory, barring a deep recession, which I know we're all concerned about inflation and the state of the economy as we move out of COVID and as we move through some social unrest and social challenges, but barring a deep recession, we may see 30% penetration of electric vehicles in the U.S. fleet by 2030. Wow, that's incredible. Electric vehicle charging stations have to become more common. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to reach rural areas like West Point, Georgia, not only urban areas like Atlanta, and appreciate the current administration's commitment to investing in that infrastructure with $5 billion dedicated for EV charging infrastructure going out through the 50 state DOTs. There's an additional $2 billion that the Biden administration has earmarked for alternative-fueled vehicle fueling infrastructure, which can also include electric vehicles. So $5 billion plus for EV charging stations over the next eight years. We're going to see a lot of changes in transportation, and it's going to help us to address transportation carbon. The most recent figures show that the transportation sector is responsible for 28% 
of the nation's total greenhouse gas emissions year over year. Wow. We're the leading sector contributing to carbon in the atmosphere. And a quarter of that 28% total is specifically due to heavy-duty vehicles. So large trucks, tractor trailers. So we've got to think about not only how do we transition communities to driving passenger EVs, but we also need to be working with companies just like Interface to transition our working fleets to electric or hydrogen fuel cell or some kind of carbon-free technology. So once we get these cars going, there's the EV charging stations, which we're all familiar with. We, you know, you plug your car into electricity, but you guys are playing with the idea that I could roll over it or put my car, like it would be in the ground. Like, tell us about that. That to me is like, that's very Jetson-y. <laughs> yeah. So you can transfer AC alternating current energy over a magnetic field. And in fact, the National Science Foundation has endowed an engineering research center called the Aspire Center. Aspire is located in Logan, Utah, where they have a test track and a laboratory. And they've innovated a 100 kW power transfer from the roadbed to vehicles driving at interstate speeds with efficiencies of 87 to 94%. Wow. Which is on the par with wire charging. Really? Okay. So, And they're able to discharge way more than 100 kW at lower speeds. In fact, they have projects at the ports of Seattle, Portland, and LA Long Beach where they're able to transfer a megawatt of power to heavy-duty vehicles that wow. are queuing at these ports waiting for their payloads. And the immediate benefit of that is that there are some risks associated with handling the large cables that transfer a megawatt to two megawatts of energy via wire charging. And so there are not only conveniences, but also real risk mitigation and being able to transfer a megawatt or two megawatts over the air without having to have workers handling cables at our inland ports and seaports. So wow. the Aspire Center is on the cutting edge, again, for passenger vehicles over the road and for truck-only lanes, for that matter. Uh-huh. They've innovated 100 kW and just... Again, for comparison, we've got 175 kW wire charging on the ray. So the wireless charging is really on the par with what we're already seeing with wired and stationary charging. And the Aspire Center is now involved in pilots with three transportation agencies. Michigan DOT announced the first mile, which will be installed in the Detroit area, which is where I happen to be today. And that will be provided by a company called Electrion. Indiana DOT last year announced a three-year project with a company called Magment. They're going to move the pilot from the laboratory in year one to the open public road by 2024. Okay. And then the central... Then the Central Florida Expressway in the Orlando area has already funded a project. It is in its final stages of planning, 
and will begin construction in Q1 of 2023, will be operational in 2025. Wow. That project is being directly provided by the Aspire Center, which again is the National Science Foundation's ERC. And I happen to be the chair of the executive board for the Aspire Center this year. So oh, I, have, <laughs> I have pretty good data on the state <laughs> of the technology like and how it's being accelerated out to the states. Talk about the economic benefits. So like, what about the implementation of the rubber asphalt roads and the right-of-way solar? Yeah, so this discussion that we're having is really focused on carbon because transportation carbon is not only a big slice of the overall greenhouse gas emissions pie, but it's also just really difficult to control because Jennifer drives the car that Jennifer wants to drive. And Monica's commute is what Monica wants it to be. And Allie's fleet is made up of whatever vehicles Allie's business decides. So there's a lot of independent choice in transportation. And we don't want to disrupt any of that freedom. There cannot be mandates. This has to be carrots, not sticks. What that means for transportation agencies like state DOTs, though, is that when they are looking at mandates or goals around reducing carbon and greenhouse gas emissions, they really don't have a lot of immediate levers to pull on because all they have is a bag of carrots. They don't have a lot of sticks. And so we're trying to fill up their toolbox with as many opportunities and as many ways that they can think about carbon, not just in direct reductions, but also in offsets. And so that gets us to the right of way, that expanse of land in all 48 contiguous states. In fact, the interstate system and the roadside, that land that is vegetated or not in pavement actually far outnumbers the number of paved miles. So the interstate system is one of the biggest landholders in the United States. And instead of enhancing productivity and stewarding best and highest use of all of that underutilized land. For 60 years, transportation agencies have held it for the possibility that one day they may need to add capacity and add a lane. They've been coveting it for the transportation use. And beginning last year in 2021, the Federal Highways Administration said there's another use for that land. It's just as important of a use as the transportation use, as adding a lane or adding capacity. And that use they're calling clean energy and connectivity projects. So clean energy and connectivity projects are a new class first time Federal Highways has ever done this. They created a new class of projects for the right-of-way for the roadside. They said it's just as important as the transportation use, and it includes EV charging stations, solar and wind energy generation infrastructure, also wireless charging lanes, also buried energy transmission lines, and buried fiber for connectivity. And finally, pollinator habitats. So they have really moved to stewarding the right-of-way at all of those different levels. And we like to talk about it as if it were a layer cake, something really delicious. And in the <laughs> South, in the South, we take the three-layer cake and we turn it into a seven-layer cake because we can pack more icing into it. And that's really what Federal Highways has done with the right-of-way. They've said, well, 
on the surface of the roadside, you can have EV charging stations connected to solar arrays, and you can have pollinator habitats under those solar panels and around those solar panels. And then underground, we can go in with fiber for connectivity to address the digital divide and to enable connected and autonomous vehicles. And we can co-locate that with an expansion of the nation's energy grid. And wow. so they've opened the door. They've given the permission slips and all the green lights. And what it takes now is for a charity organization to walk softly next to transportation agencies to help them plan and analyze and procure those projects and hold their hands during that process. Because you have to understand transportation agencies are full of transportation experts. They don't know energy grid infrastructure. They're not familiar with solar panels. You're not talking their language when you start talking about native perennial plants <laughs> that provide habitat for bees and butterflies. And so we have to get out of our silo and silo thinking and help to bridge that technical gap and help to instill confidence with the transportation agencies moving forward with these projects. And that's what we've done on the Ray. We've got a megawatt of pollinator-friendly solar at exit 14 of the Ray Highway. It's a Georgia Power commercial site that's grid-connected. And then we also have worked with Esri to develop a solar mapping tool for the roadsides that uses the transportation agency's own data sets, their own information about their road widths, their road center lines, their parcels on the roadsides, and we can plan solar arrays in a very accelerated fashion because Esri has gifted the Ray with this amazing GIS mapping tool. Mm. And so when you say it's one of the largest landowners, which I think is fascinating because we don't think of it that way because it's not contiguous it's like all of these little strips that are on the side but some are wider with tons of beautiful bushes and trees but to your point they're not being utilized they can't be a playground right we can't have kids you know out there probably can't have farming because of the chemical runoff but we could do solar arrays so, so do you know what the number of acres are. And I know that you've given me data in the past, that solar, how much it could power the cities that it's in. Like, it's a really interesting thing that it is a completely underutilized area, but talk a little bit about that. Yeah, we worked, I don't know, before COVID, probably four years ago with UT Austin to do a rough analysis of just the diamond interchanges in the 48 contiguous states on the interstate system. And that rough analysis found nearly 53,000 acres of roadside land that wow. would be suitable for solar development. And Holy we projected God. that those 53,000 acres could produce enough energy to power 12 million electric vehicles in the country. And we try to express it in that sort of tangible way because you can clearly power electric vehicle charging stations with solar arrays. We've done it. That was our first project six years ago, seven years ago, in fact. So not only is it feasible, but it's also just a great opportunity to put roadside solar to use. We can build EV charging hubs and power it with that solar and use backup battery storage to make it resilient and to make it something that is people have confidence in that infrastructure always being available for them to use. We can also use that roadside solar 
to build community solar programs for disadvantaged communities mm-hmm. that are living along the highway and interstate system. Unless you're in an urban core, most of the communities that are adjacent to highways and interstates are disadvantaged. And so we can build really innovative community solar programs and target that equity value of offering that solar power to those communities that were disrupted when the interstate system was first built. You can also use that solar energy to power the facilities that are on the interstate system. So we talk a lot about the distribution centers, the manufacturing, the data centers, which are very power intense, energy intensive. Also, Bitcoin mining, all of those activities on the roadsides when the facility is adjacent to the right of way. Right-of-way solar can be developed for proprietary use by the private sector as well. And the reason is because it's the public's right-of-way and the public faces an existential challenge called the climate crisis. And the federal government believes that it is a best and highest use of the roadside to provide clean energy for the public and private sectors. So they've paved the way for multi-use of the roadside solar. It doesn't just have to be a utility like Georgia Power providing grid-connected solar that's commercial. We can imagine the solar taking shape in many different forms. So could a company, whether that's like, and I'll just use these big company, Amazon Distribution or a Google Data Center, that's on the highway, could they come to a DOT, a Department of Transportation, and say, instead of a nonprofit coming and partnering, could they bring the funding to help incorporate that and then partner in that solar energy? Is that possible? That's exactly right. And we're working with private sector companies that have frontage, that have facilities on the interstate system. We're working with them now to analyze the roadsides for their own proprietary solar and to begin the process with the Federal Highways Administration. And you can imagine in Georgia alone how many companies. We've got OEMs that are announcing electric vehicle manufacturing facilities with net zero targets for their own facilities. So in addition to Amazon and Walmart and Ikea who have commitments to being net zero companies. So there's a lot of opportunity there. The constraints of the work that we did with UT Austin is that we were just limited to diamond interchanges, but the Esri ArcGIS Pro mapping tool allows us to look at all the roadsides, including rest area land, including the butterfly circular interchanges, and even the long straight lengths of roadside that might be quite large. We can look and plan for those as well. So we're completing the analysis for, I think we've got a dozen states that are in the midst of working through the analysis with us. And then another 10 states that are in queue. So nearly half of the country is either requesting to do this, getting their data sets in order, or actually going through the analysis. And I can't divulge the specifics, but I can think of two states, one of whom is in the southeast region, where you know that 53,000 acre estimate that we arrived at years ago is far less than what we're finding with the specific data sets. We're finding 50,000 acres in a single state. Wow. That would be appropriate for solar development. Not necessarily ideal, but appropriate. So the opportunity is massive. 
it'll take us months to get through the analysis, but it will be a much quicker process than if it were done by hand with plats and parcel maps. So, you know, <laughs> right. we're really trying to we're really trying to change the facts on the ground in multiple states by accelerating and moving quickly to project planning and execution. Is that what you mean by appropriate? Like it's not the, you know, there isn't enough land, but there's enough to be able to do the studies and the research and do the work that you need. Yeah. And it's the difference between appropriate versus ideal roadside land. It's just the difference between what you could do versus what you should do first. So there are certain parcels that are large. They've got the best orientation for solar radiation and they've got the appropriate elevation. So they're not too steep of roadside or steep slopes. And then we also take into account the surface modeling or the tree cover of the facilities that may be on the land. And we don't ever advocate for tree clearing in order to make way for solar. A lot of transportation agencies are clearing trees for safety reasons anyway. And so when there is tree clearing that is inevitable, we like to then be able to go in with the mapping tool and propose a next best use if the tree clearing is already funded and is going to happen, then at least we can transition that land into roadside solar. One of the things like the New York Times just had an article maybe this weekend or last week that combining solar with agriculture or cattle could be grazing or the solar panels would be up 14 feet so the plants could be underneath and they could move them so they could get shade and light, blah, blah, blah. I think you guys are doing, I don't know if it's similar. I don't know if it's a combined thing, but I know you have like a vegetative pilot or vegetation pilot which I was fascinated with because we talk a lot about regenerative agriculture and understanding cover crops and how the plantings sequester carbon, how it's super important the roots, the depth of the roots for plants to keep the soil healthy. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because that's another really interesting usage. You know, this is not for edible crops, right? This is for plantings, other type of plantings. Absolutely. First of all, any solar should be pollinator friendly, period, full stop. If anyone is building solar arrays with gravel or turf grass in the array itself, that's almost caveman and cavewoman practice (laughs) now. (laughs) We've come a long way and there's really no reason why you wouldn't use native perennials under and around your solar panels and your solar array. First and foremost, because it's a great land conservation opportunity, solar arrays usually have an agreement for 20, 30, sometimes even 35 years. And so whereas we appreciate the conservation that occurs because of our local botanical gardens, the scale is much, much larger when you're talking about solar arrays that may cover hundreds, if not thousands or tens of thousands of acres. It's an opportunity that we cannot miss with the solar arrays that we already have need to be converted into pollinator friendly and all new solar really must be agrivoltaics or pollinator friendly solar period full stop as it relates to the roadside we have pollinator friendly solar on the ray it's a best practice but we also have what we call the living laboratory at exit six which is where the kia georgia plant is located and really the goal of both pollinator friendly solar as well as the goals of the living laboratory on the ray highway are to change the archaic practices of roadside vegetation management, which is mowing the grass. I don't know where it started. I don't know why a golf course aesthetic is what we think is appropriate and desirable for the roadsides, (laughs) but planting Bermuda and fescue at scale on the roadsides is folly. 
It's also very expensive. In Georgia alone, we're spending $49 million every year to mow the grass. What? Wow. Just to mow? As, just to mow. Just to mow. As you know, that's, that's like a crime. <laughs> turf grass has like a four inch root system. And so when you're talking about yeah. climate extremes, when you're talking about intense heat, prolonged drought, when you're talking about flash flooding and severe storms, winter storms, and severe rainstorms and rainfall, turf grass is not your first line of defense for resilient vegetation management. And as a result, we end up having extensive erosion, which leads to sedimentation of our waterways because the roadside vegetation approach is outdated and illogical, really. And so how do we move that paradigm? How do we shift the paradigm towards planting native perennials that do not need to be mowed every six to eight weeks over the spring, summer, and fall? And how do we incentivize transportation agencies with economic wins and with carbon? And so just as we were talking about electric vehicle charging infrastructure can drive down transportation carbon as the fleet electrifies and roadside solar can provide good carbon offsets for transportation agencies who are looking for more ways to reduce carbon. We think that soil restoration is an important opportunity for state DOTs and other transportation agencies to start investing in now. And how we go about that is by planting perennial native plants with deeper root systems, mowing those roadside vegetation less often, and reducing or eliminating the chemical sprays that are applied for weed control on the roadsides. Over time, a change in practice for roadside vegetation management will result in healthier soils, which will result in more direct carbon sequestration in those soils. And so we're trying to get transportation agencies excited about soil. <laughs> and again, fascinating. These are left-hand turns, right? This is not like an easier way into a right-hand turn. These are <laughs> left-hand turns and paradigm shifts, yeah. but getting DOTs interested in the soils because the soils sequester carbon and it's another tool in the toolbox for transportation agencies saying and showing that they're addressing carbon in their sector. So fascinating to me. I feel like every conversation we have goes back to soil, even in your line of work, right? It's like that for behavioral change, it doesn't happen overnight. It's going to take years, but it's that education of like why soil matters, even for our highways. That's fascinating to me because I never really thought about it, but it's so, so important. And the habitats matter to everyone because we need bees and butterflies and bats and other pollinators to power our food system. In Georgia right now, the blueberries and the peaches, they don't happen without pollinators. And so we all have a vested interest in pollinator habitat, but really trying to find the direct incentive for transportation agencies to get interested in soil. And we think that carbon sequestration over this decade will be the opportunity for transportation agencies to think and act differently when it comes to roadside vegetation and the soils, because it's actually going to become more and more valuable to them than just adding another lane. Right. And it's like the, thinking back, Jennifer, you mentioned like the economic, they could clearly start to understand if there's a solar panel there, there's an economic benefit. I'm putting this on my roadway. There's a value to that energy, but 
I think it's a miss probably that the U.S. or other countries aren't putting value on the soil or value on vegetation that sequesters carbon. But one thing I think, and I don't know where you guys are on it that I had read, is that you were doing a pilot with a certain type of grain that maybe you could be harvesting, that you could be growing the grain on the roadside, harvesting the grain, but it wouldn't be for food use. It would be a raw material source that could go into toilet paper, baby diapers, or kitchen napkins, or whatever. Is there somebody like, I know we have Georgia Pacific here, like, is there somebody that is interested in that? Because then now we have a commodity potentially that we're growing on there. Because we know that money talks, that when we can put dollars against something, for better or worse, that's where we see value. And so are you seeing that as a way to kind of start having that conversation rather than just like, hey, it's good for the world? Yeah, that's right. The idea first came to us from Kimberly Clark. Kimberly Clark has a manufacturing facility on the Ray Highway, and they produce disposable consumer goods. So toilet paper, paper towels, baby diapers are produced at the facility. And one of the early conversations we had with Kimberly Clark was about feedstocks and how they were relying more on bamboo and wheat straw as feedstocks for their disposable consumer goods. And so, of course, we went to Georgia DOT and suggested that we grow bamboo on the roadsides. And they said, oh, go back to the drawing board, think again. (laughs) And so then we started to think about wheat straw. And that is what we have been working on for years now. We've even planted a perennial grain called Kernza, which is a darling of Patagonia now. They're making beer, they're making cereals, and they're starting to make clothing out of the fiber produced from Kernza. It's a Eurasian ancient perennial. And the organizations like the Land Institute located in Kansas are using Kernza as a crossbreeding technique to try to make perennial the traditional wheat that we are planting in the U.S., which is an annual. And so Kernza is not only an immediate commodity, but it's actually a tool for innovating our existing grain seed mix to be perennial over time, which would be just another way that we're moving our food system to be more regenerative. We also, for the first time this year, have cultivated rye on the roadsides. It's not ever for just one thing, right? I mean, we are looking at plant types that will be native, or if they're not native, they won't be invasive, right? So they'll play well with others in the sandbox. We need them to be resilient and tolerant of climate extremes, and we need them to be very good at holding the soils from erosion and sedimentation. So having that really robust root bed. Even with Kernza, you get roots growing at the surface of the ground. It creates a root map, not just a root bed, but a mat at the surface of the soil, which is really interesting when you're thinking about eroded steep slopes on the roadsides. So there's a lot that we can continue to learn. And I think that some of the people who are doing this at the edge of the spear are people like Harry Lopes, L-O-P-E-S, over in the UK. He produces solar with conservation habitats. So he looks at the endangered habitats in the UK, like the heathlands, and he repeats that habitat 
and his solar arrays mm. where appropriate, where regionally appropriate. So looking at not only agrivoltaics and pollinator-friendly solar, but also thinking about solar arrays on the roadside as an opportunity to conserve and expand endangered habitats where regionally appropriate. That's absolutely amazing. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah. I mean, did is. you even think when you started this that there would be this many incredible projects and interconnectivity? And I love the layer cake analogy. I don't know if it comes through on a podcast, but we're really having the time of our lives. That's we have fantastic. a charter now, a formal chartered relationship with Georgia DOT and the Federal Highway Administration. The relationships and the commitment to this work at home have never been stronger. And so that gives us an extra sense of motivation and energy around this work as we carry the ideas into projects in other states. We're literally beyond our capacity in responding to inquiries. Over the holiday weekend, we received three new inquiries from transportation agencies we had not met before. My only concern is that the challenges of this decade may take us off our course of action around the climate crisis. And we at the Ray believe that, well, there are a lot of important things in our lives and in our world. not one is less important than the other, of course. That being said, the IPCC 6 report made it clear that this is the decade for mitigation. We cannot be throwing in the towel and focused on adaptation just yet. Mm -hmm. And the adaptation is not a bad thing. It's not a dirty word. It's just that you have to focus on your focus. And the focus of this decade, according to the IPCC, is mitigation. And so every day we have to get up feeling motivated to mitigate carbon, to try to manage to one and a half C or less by 2030. And transportation, we think that's the plot twist. Mm -hmm. Everyone thinks transportation is the origin of all ills, right? (laughs) Like all air pollution and congestion and traffic. And, but we think in the final chapter that transportation actually saves the world. Oh, I love that. Well, that's a great way to end unless there's anything else you want to add, but everybody needs to go follow the Ray, the Ray.org, O-R-G, incredible pictures and all explanations and a mapping tool for solar and incredible work on there. And then Allie, are you on social media or should we follow the Ray? What should we be doing? Yeah. How do we support you? Our website is the Ray.org. We are on Twitter at the Ray Highway. Same for Facebook and also Instagram. And I would love to come back and update y'all on future podcasts. We have more projects coming and we've only scratched the surface. I would love to take a deep dive on rubber modified asphalt. <laughs> yes. And yes, yes. Yes. And smart Sign highways us up. if you'll invite me back soon. We're all about the nerdy, (laughs) the nerdy the better alley. I'm like, how do we share these cool ideas that nobody even knows? Because it's the little things, right? It's these like, what? Who knew that I could do something with the highways here? And so then how can I champion my representatives or city council members to sort of understand that this exists and then make the change? I mean, just that $49 million to mow the grass. Yeah, that's huge. It makes me want to cry. Yeah. What could we be doing with, you know, once we convert it all, 
then it becomes a money maker. And so then to your point about all those neighborhoods that are adjacent, how could we reinvest that as a nation taking these public goods? And to me, I'm like, I'm going to go into politics and run on that. I hope that you'll never drive (laughs) on the interstate on your next road trip. Don't look at the roadsides the same way ever again. I hope that with new imagination and with the understanding of what more we could be doing. I know. Monica, just as you said, we've considered the roadsides and transportation to be a liability all these years. And it's time to flip the script and see the opportunities and the real productivity, the real money Mm -hmm. that we can make and the real change that we can make using what we already have. It's already in the public's hands. Well, you've given us hope, Allie. Thank you. It's beautiful. Yeah, and really a lot of hope and a lot of learnings. I didn't, you know, I know so much about the right. I know so much about you. And when Monica and Katrina talked about having you on, I knew certain things, but you just opened my eyes in so many ways that are so exciting because I feel like there's so much potential and opportunity ahead. So I'm here to help support you in any way that I can too, as well as our podcast here. So thank you for being a part of the show today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, ladies. Thank you so much. Okay, so that was fascinating. There are so many things I think I didn't even realize we could do with our highways and roads to make them not only more resilient in the face of climate change, but also safer for all of us and less harmful to the environment. I know. She really, at the end there, said we really need to re-look at our highways in a different way. And I can't get over the $49 million we spend every single year in Georgia (laughs) just to mow the turf grass, (laughs) which is really doing nothing for biodiversity. It doesn't help absorb water or prevent flooding. And, you know, it's just a complete waste of space that just having grass like that, it's actually quite maddening. Yeah, it really is maddening when you think about it, especially when there are so many easy and cost-effective ways to do it. Planting pollinator habitats, for example, is so great for rebuilding biodiversity. And many of those plants have deeper root systems, which make soil healthier and more absorbent. Factor in the cost saving from a maintenance perspective, and it's like, why are we doing this everywhere in the world? It just makes such common sense. Exactly. And I really was struck by the way that the Ray balances those sort of common sense ideas with lo-fi solutions, right? Such as cutting edge technology, like, of course, we should have solar paved highways. So electric vehicle sales are already on the rise and they're going up. Imagine how many people would be more inclined to go electric for their next car if they could just charge it while they're driving it, which is so cool to me. I think even people who don't necessarily consider renewables or solar is something that they wanted to have in their day to day would be enticed by something like this. So true. And the one thing we touched on but didn't really get into is rubber roads. So the idea to repave worn out roads using a mix of recycled tires and asphalt, there's so many benefits of doing this. For one thing, reusing scrap tires reduces the hazard of tire dumps, but those roads can also cut down on noise pollution and increases road durability and longevity by as many as 20 years. I know. And then why aren't we doing that everywhere? (laughs) Exactly. So to see all these amazing things that the Ray is doing and to support their work, head over to theray.org. Also, while you're there, make sure to educate yourself on their other initiatives so you can advocate for them where you live, because there's so many solutions that are good for the environment and cut costs, which is a real win-win. Absolutely. Okay. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. So we'll see you soon, Monica. 
Thanks so much for listening. And if you're enjoying the podcast, we would love for you to follow us on your favorite podcast app. Give us a five-star rating and please leave us a review. It really goes such a long way towards helping us reach a wider audience and sharing these amazing interviews and solutions with the world. Absolutely. So thanks so much for following and reviewing the podcast. And we'll be back with another amazing interview in two weeks. You're now a part of the biophilic movement. Thank you.